Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. This morning we're going to be taking a look at uh, Psalm 19, verse uh, 7. We'll go down to verse 11. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. The uh, title of my message this morning is The Law of Yahweh is Perfect. The Law of Yahweh is Perfect. So we'll be staying in the same vein of, of thought as Andrew has led us. The Lord is leading us into deeper holiness, um, a deeper understanding of who we are as God's people. And God's people love his law. And so... Um, we're going to explore that because I know there's some confusion around the law, and I, I hope to bring some clarity by the help of the Holy Spirit. But let's look at our uh, text, uh, Psalm 19, verse 7. I'm be reading out of my new Bible. It's a, the LSB. It's called like the NASB, but um, just follow along in your Bible. The law of Yahweh is perfect restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your slave is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us to our own imagination but you laid out your desires for us in black and white that we might behold them with our eyes and live them out with a heart that is set upon you. And Lord, as the the psalmist said, open up our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things in your law this morning. We love you. Amen. So we are living in a day where everyone has a truth. Some people say, I'm just living my truth. Well, you can live in that fantasy land if you want, but I'm not joining you there. Truth isn't malleable. It doesn't change with the times, nor is it subject to your opinion. Something is either true or it is false. 99% accuracy is still wrong. And people who claim to serve Yahweh while intentionally trying to redefine that which he has laid bare before us as truth have have been sadly mistaken. Every kingdom has a law. The law reveals the governing entity's desired conduct and environment that the kingdom is to be characterized by. And our king is no different. He has a law that is to characterize the citizen's conduct and the atmosphere of his kingdom. The kingdom and the church are not the same. The church is part of the kingdom, but the kingdom is more than the church. Our king's domain reaches from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It is over every nation, tribe, and tongue. The entire universe and the whole of the cosmos is under his rule. Therefore, his law is required to be obeyed in that same scope. Abraham Kuyper, a former prime minister of the Netherlands, he once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of the human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Even wicked Nebuchadnezzar recognized God's sovereign rule over heaven and earth. 
how much more as Yahweh's people should we love his rule and his law? So in our text, we see that the psalmist might, David, he has a different view of the law than many of us do. When we hear law, we've been trained by mostly bad teaching <laughs> to think of it as a negative. But you'll see that throughout the book of Psalms, the people of God are rejoicing over the law of God. His mercy that is new every morning, his guarding of his people is set forth by his parameters, by his boundaries, their safety in the law of God. And he has communicated this to us that we might dwell in blessing and dwell in safety. Many people think that God's law is a killjoy, but it's actually the one that rejoices the heart. Many people have misconstrued this and, and think that because there's rules, freedom is minimized. But actually, true freedom is only experienced within the bounds of God's law. And the spirit of God was given to us in, I, I think it's Ezekiel 36. It says, I'll give you uh, a new heart. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. And so the people of God, the, the, the people that have been born again of the spirit of God have been now empowered to live the law of God. So specifically, David is speaking of the Torah in the first five books of the Bible with special attention to Exodus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But because all scripture is God breathed, God's word can be called his law word, wherein contains God's testimonies and desires the story of redemption and God's perfect instruction to his people that he might be worshipped according to the splendor of his holiness. The abiding validity of the law is really centered around the moral law in the Old Testament, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And I hope to show you by the scriptures that these are to be adhered to by all people at all times. This wasn't given for a one-time thing. These were revealed the heart of God as a desire for the existence of humanity. Life is preserved by the law of God. Life is cherished by the law of God. And uh, I hope to, to show you that. The law of God historically has been described as having a threefold use. And uh, bear with me. There will be a little bit of, of teaching here because I want to get some of these things to you so you could have this in your heart so there's a threefold use and i'll mention them briefly here and we'll expound a little bit further as we go down um, in the message but firstly it reveals our sin and therefore our need for christ secondly it restrains evil when used as the ultimate standard of truth thirdly it matures us into the image of christ by revealing his righteous nature and command you can say we don't need God's law. We just need to love God and love neighbor. But until you recognize the law word of God as the objective standard by which that is actualized, you are subject to everyone else's godless opinions and your own. <laughs> I don't know how to love my neighbor unless God tells me how to love my neighbor. I don't know how to love him unless he tells me how to love him. So everyone abides by a law, whether you're a believer or uh, an unbeliever. Everyone has a religion. The state religion of our day is secularism. It has a law, too. So it's not a question of whether we have a law. It's just which law we abide by. It is not whether people are religious and obey a standard. It's just a matter of which one. Every nation is theocratic. The question is, who is theo? Theo being God. Who is the God of the nation? Secular society, man is God. And it has a gospel. And it has convictions and beliefs and doctrine. It even has sacraments like abortion and transitioning children. It has blasphemy laws in place. If you say the wrong thing, you'll be punished. Cancel culture. 
So again, this is not a matter of which law you abide by. It's a, a matter of which law you will bow to. And there is an objective standard of truth. And that phrase is a trigger to the postmodern man. It proclaims that there is a right way. There is an ultimate authority. God's law produces and preserves life. And to rebel is to choose death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Many people say you can't legislate morality, but actually it's the only thing that can be legislated. Someone's morality is being legislated. Why not it be God's? And if it is true, um, and so I'll, I'll bring some clarifications here. What we aren't saying is that we are required to uphold the ceremonial law in the Old Testament. The ceremonial law was type and shadows of Christ to come and uh, revealing how he would suffer and how he would atone for sin and uh, how the people of God would be made holy and separate from the world. So all of these things, they seem very tedious because they are, but it's showing the major separation that God's people are to be defined by. Now, we don't abide by the ceremonial law today, but it's only because Christ is seating, seated at the right hand of the Father, upholding the ceremonial law forevermore. So he has upheld it perfectly in his perfect substitutionary life, and the ceremonial law is still being abided by by Christ because he did it once for and for all. So neither are we saying that we are saved by our adherence to the law. We are saved through faith alone. But one of my favorite theologians, John Calvin, said, we are saved through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. If you are saved by faith alone, works will come from your life. Good works will come from your life. That's what he's saying there. For wi faith without works is dead. And you might say, well, Jesus said, I fulfilled the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And you are right. But he didn't fulfill the law so that we would be lawless. He fulfilled it so that we would be able to adhere to his righteous commands. And the only way that we could make objective claims about morality is because God said in his law, and it abides forever. So we can go to the bank, we can bank our life on the word of God, on his law. And the purpose of this is to say, uh, as Psalm 119.7 says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. My heart is upright and can praise him the way he desires to be worshipped and praised throughout my entire life when I learn in accordance with his law. Because we don't get to just make this thing up as we go. <laughs> There's a standard. There is a plumb line and a straight way. And he has laid it out for us. So we don't have to guess. We could just read it together and say, I got to deal with that. That thing right there that I see in his word that's illuminating this rebellion in my own heart. I need to deal with that. Father, forgive us. <laughs> and we, it throws us to our knees in reliance on God. And that is his mercy. That is his grace. That he would continually set before us boundaries and preservation of our life. If left to our own devices, we will choose death every time. So we love your law, Lord. The purpose of this study on the law is to encourage you to love the law of God and to show its abiding relevance in your life so that we might lead lives pleasing to God, to see the rebellion in our own lives and the world around us because the church is in need of reformation. When, when Calvin was asked why re uh, reformation was needed in the church, he said, because God is not wor being worshipped according to his word and salvation is being hidden from the eyes of the people. We want to worship him according to his word and we don't want to hide salvation from the people. For salvation is not just um, exit from guilt of sin, it's exit from a sin habit. It's empowerment to live holy. 
There's life in holiness. <laughs> so there's the threefold division of the law um, that's traditionally been divided as the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. The moral law can be summarized in the Ten Commandments. And uh, according to Romans 2, this is written upon everyone's heart. In Romans 2.14, it says, When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things the law, the things of the law, not having the law, are a law to themselves, and they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscious bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. This is our conscience. Every man is given a conscience, and you can continually sear your conscience so that you are no longer checked by right and wrong. But nonetheless, man has the law of God written on his heart. The ceremonial law uh, we talked about is the, the shadows uh, of the, the rituals and the dietary restrictions and the washings, all typifying Christ in his sufferings and revealing God's people as being separate from the world. So you see the law, there's no, you're not allowed to mix fabrics in the law, in the ceremonial law. Why is that? Because there's no mixture allowed in God's people of worldliness and godliness. It's, it's a symbol. It's, it's revealing things. It's, it's all unto separation. And then judicial law is the civil law prescribed in the ordinances for the government of the Jewish commonwealth of the day and the civil punishments for the offenders of the law. And um, but as far as the judicial law um, upholds and establishes the moral law, it still can be used as a standard for a society to say, wow, that's a righteous rule. How do we deal with people that murder? Well, this is how God's law deals with them. It doesn't always have to be every situation, but it's that's a righteous standard. If you look at God's law and say that's unrighteous, you have the problem, not the standard. And you have to deal with that. <laughs> you have to say, Lord, when I read your law, this looks unfair to me, but it's only because I cannot see it from your perspective. Let God be true and every man a liar. <laughs> so the, the civil law can be something as, as um, they talk about a parapet, uh, put around the the house uh, top. So in the in the Middle East, at night it can get you know it's hot in the desert. They would sleep sometimes on their roof um, because it was cooler up there. And they have a mandatory fence be built around the top so that nobody falls off the roof when people visit your house or you yourself don't fall off. It's for safety. But if someone falls off your roof and you don't have a fence, you are liable for that person's life because it's in the law to do it. And so we look at that and we say, well, there's no way for us to do that. And there's no reason for us to do that because we don't hang out on our roof all that often. But today in our society, we do require fences around pools for the same reason. So it's taking the general equity of the law of God and saying there's a principle here that we can apply to love our neighbor. And by loving our neighbor, we put fences around our pools. If that, you know, just making the connection there. And then there's the, the threefold use of the law. Number one, it's to be a mirror. As Paul said in Galatians, the law is our schoolmaster leading us to Christ. It's to reveal God's perfection and righteousness to reveal our inability to make ourselves right with God by works. Number two, it's to restrain evil. Like I said earlier, the looming severity of punishment and consequences makes wicked men think twice about committing crimes. Um, so even though men are evil and they want to do evil things, by there being a consequence on the books it restrains men from doing the evil that they would love to do. So you see, uh, you know, the, there was movies a, a, a little while back called The Purge that came out. And it was a time, it had highlighted a time where all of law would be suspended and men would be able to do all the evil that was in their hearts to do. So when law is removed, men become as evil as they can be because there's no consequence. But the law of God restrains evil so that men can't be as evil as they would like to. 
like to be. So that's one, one of the reasons why we love God's law. <laughs> and number three, it's to reveal what is pleasing to God. By studying the law of God, we see how to please God. Again, this is not of earning our salvation, but it's a demonstration that we truly love God, not just with our lips, but with our lives. Here we are formed into the image of Christ, loving righteousness and hating wickedness. As the late uh, R.C. Sproul once uh, wrote, by studying and meditating on the law of God, we attend the school of righteousness. We learn what pleases God and what offends him. The moral law that God reveals in scripture is always binding upon us. Our redemption is from the curse of the law, not from our duty to obey it. We are justified, not because of our obedience to the law, but in order that we might become obedient to the law. To love Christ is to keep his commandments. To love God is to obey his law. So the Israelites were not God's people because they obeyed his commands. They obeyed his commands because they were his people. That's the distinction. Uh, an old Puritan said, the law sends us to the gospel that we might be justified. And then the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what our duty is now that we've been justified. And I think that's one of the principal evidences of the new birth is that we go from hating his law to loving it and desiring it, looking at it as beautiful. So let's look back at our text and comment on on some of these phrases here i went really in in depth in breaking all of this down um and it just really gave me some beautiful insights so verse seven the first section there the law of yahweh is perfect one of the things that we can glean from the law is the revelation of the nature of god his law is perfect because he is perfect uh charles spurgeon commenting on this verse he says the law of god is perfect in all of its parts and perfect as a whole, it is a crime to add to it, treason to alter it, and a felony to take from it. Restoring the soul there, it means reviving. It means bringing to life. It's reinvigorating the innermost part of a man, the part that transforms the rest of our life. It brings life, it preserves life, it protects and defends life. That word restore there is the same word in Joel where it says return to me. Return to me with all of your heart. It's what restores the soul. It's by beholding the law of God and its perfection. It restores the soul to love God. Well, when the church in the book of Revelation, when it says they lost their first love, the remedy was do the works you did at first as the remedy to their loss of love. So God says works are not bad. It says in, in, I think it's Ephesians, that he prepared good works for us beforehand that we might walk in them. This is on the heart of God. And we are watching a society crumble because it's neglecting the law of God and his righteous standards. But man does not want to be governed Man wants to be God. But we will not bow <laughs> to that ideology. We will walk in his purity. We will walk in his holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about this in worship this morning. Our, obviously, there's the law of the land. And if you go to another country and there's an em embassy there, when you step onto the embassy of the United States in another country, the law is present there the same way it is present here in the in the homeland the church is where the church is is the domain of the kingdom of god and the same way the law the righteous law and rule of god is in heaven everywhere the church is the kingdom of god and the law of god is there and in that you know if you're in the church it's not just the building but there's a a picture of it even old saints when they build churches and different things they made it look like heaven because they were saying when you're here you're in the kingdom of God and the law of God is established here 
and we will not move it here because we b are citizens of another nation. And we abide by, that, abide by that law. And the whole point of the conquering of Christ in the world and discipleship and it's teaching them to obey everything that he commanded us, right, in the Great Commission. It's the establishment of the law of God from sea to sea. In uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 42, it says the coastlands are waiting for the law of God. That they're waiting for the righteous rule of God. When the law was given in, in, in Deuteronomy, when uh, Moses is kind of reiterating the law to the people of God, he says when the nations see how beautiful this law is, they're going to marvel and say, who is this God that you serve that is this righteous, that is this perfect, that would give a law just like this? So if we as the people of God can't see the perfection of the law, that's a problem. Because the nations and the coastlands are waiting for the law of God to be ruled by God. One day when he splits the sky and everything is made perfectly right, the coastlands are going to rejoice. For the law of God will be established perfectly. And until then, we will continue to push for its establishment until that time. The testimony of Yahweh is sure. When we set our hearts by the grace of God to obey the commandments of God, we are telling Yahweh that we believe him. We believe your way is best and your word is trustworthy. This is, in essence, what repentance is. It is looking at God's standard and saying, Lord, you are right and I am wrong. Please forgive my rebellion and help me to walk in your ways. That is repentance. They are made plain on the pages of the Holy Scriptures, and you could bank your life on them, for they are sure. They're making wise the simple. Simple is foolish, one without knowledge. Wisdom comes to the one not only that is foolish, but the one who's willing to admit he is foolish. The perfectly reliable wisdom of God is revealed in his testimony, both old and new. Verse 8, the precepts of Yahweh are right, which is almost synonymous with the word commandments. They are a directive rules for the way that we conduct ourselves god's precepts are the appropriate action to take in a given situation they are not suggestions <laughs> and they are rejoicing the heart as first john 5 says for this is the love of god that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome they rejoice the heart not only are they right and good, they bring joy to the heart of those who heed them. How kind is Yahweh, not only to give us the right way to walk and the ability to know what is pleasing in his sight, but that which he directs us to do will bring us joy. He's so kind. The commandment of Yahweh is pure. That means there's no mixture. That's the picture there of the, of the fabrics. Again, it's clean. It's single. It's clean, and it cleans where it resides. The heart that fears the Lord has its affections cleansed by its residence there. The mind that fears the Lord has its thoughts cleansed as, it's, as it rewrites neuropathways in your mind. The, the hands that fear the Lord are, uh, has their deeds cleansed by the cleansing flow of the fear of the Lord. The feet that fear the Lord no longer run to sin, but flee from iniquity to the throne of their God. They are enduring forever. It is never ending. Once that precious fear of the Lord makes its home in your soul, it purges out all the poisons of the flesh and this world till you are confirmed and made into the image of Christ. Wherever the fear of the Lord lives, it pushes out the impurity. It pushes out the poison. And life and blessing flow in that place. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. When the righteous rule, the people are glad. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. The judicial, uh, Spurgeon said this, the judicial decisions of Yahweh as revealed in the law or illustrated in the history of his providence are truth itself. Because of the perfection of God, everything he passes judgment upon is based on truth. Therefore, his judgments are truth. Not only is each individual judgment true, they are true as a whole. 
Also, they are not decided for in a moment with a rash decision. They flow from his perfect being. He's not reacting like, oh, uh, I think I'll do that. No. It's, he's so perfectly established in his being. There's only one way that he reacts to sin. There's only one way he reacts to righteousness because it's who he is. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. And this is rooted and grounded in his very being, in his essence. Earthly judges make their judgments after they have heard the case. But God, the judge of all, judges based on truth alone. And he can never be bribed or tricked. He is the judge of all, and he will most certainly do right. Verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. They are greater than earthly treasures, and they are sweeter than earthly pleasures. They are to be sought after because there is nothing that compares to having the knowledge of what pleases God. Lastly, in verse 11, moreover, by your slave, they are warned. It's a guard against indwelling sin. It's a guard against the world. It's a guard against idolatry. I want to read this little part from Tozer, uh, A.W. Tozer. He says, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment about uh, thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they themselves are idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. So these thoughts from Tozer Kiasin on the fact that error in theology is actually not a minor issue. If we think wrongly about God, we begin to construct a God in our own image and we begin to worship this God that we've created. This is our generation's golden calf, is wrong views of God. Just sitting around thinking, oh, this is really good. You know, if I, if I would have a God, this is what he would be like. That's a golden calf, and that needs to be destroyed. Only the law of God reveals what our God is like. It is perfect. It is unmovable. It is unchanging. There is only one God. Every other God is an idol. And frighteningly, by that standard, many people, many even churches, do not serve the God of the Bible, but need the Holy Spirit to come and awaken. It's time to get back to the Holy Scriptures and reevaluate. In keeping, in keeping them there is great reward, that last clause in our uh, text. The law of God provides life and blessing to you and those around you. Just by you being one who upholds the law of God, those that are connected to you are blessed. In, in Corinthians, it says that the children of at least one believing spouse is made holy just by being in the same house with one believer. And their spouse, if they're an unbeliever, is made holy too. This is the power of the blessing of God that resides on his people. It's an overflow to those people. And it provides joy in obedience. It provides real reward in the age to come. Lastly, last thing that we'll do, and we'll wrap things up, I want to take communion together. But uh, to illustrate what our response to the law of God should be, I, I encourage you, begin to read through the Bible. If you just do like a verse every day, praise God, that's amazing. But you read through the Bible. Read through. Go start in Genesis and go through the best that you can. It's important that we understand our God rightly. And we don't just take someone else's word for it. You shouldn't take my word for it. Everything that's not according to this word, you should challenge me on it. I want this word to be the standard for my life and for the people of God's life. That's what it's to be. And everywhere that it doesn't line up, we should look together and say, but what about this? What about this right here? And we're all held accountable to it. But our response to the law of God, I think, is really beautifully 
We were given a beautiful example in the life of King Josiah in 2 Kings. And it illustrates what the people of God's response should be when we're confronted by the law of God. So a little bit of a, a background on King Josiah. He is the grandson of a man named Manasseh. He's one of the most wicked kings that have ever lived. And he was a king of the people of Israel, or the people of Judah at the time the kingdom was divided. But not just wicked in terms of the kings that ruled Israel, but wicked in terms that he surpassed wickedness that pagan nations lived in. It says that with his idolatry and witchcraft and child sacrifice, he spilled enough innocent blood to fill Jerusalem from one end to the other. He reigned for 55 years and led Israel to do more evil than the surrounding pagan nations that God drove out by the Israelites previously. And if we're blown away by that statistic of the, that, that innocent bloodshed that fills Jerusalem from one end to the other, it is nothing in compared to the innocent blood that this nation has shed. 65 million babies. If we don't think that God is no respecter of persons, his righteous rule is established and it will not be moved. But if his people humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, he will come and heal their land. But if we think that we are removed out of coming under the judgment of God, we are sadly mistaken. Our, our nation at one time may have had righteous standards, but it no longer does. And this isn't a political thing. This is a God thing. This is a kingdom thing. And we are to talk, uh, speak to the civil magistrate and say, you are as much liable to uh, bow to the law of God as I am as his servant. And until the righteous rule, the people perish. And so it's not about a man in an office, but it is about righteous rule in the land. And that's why we need an awakening. Because there's wickedness in the church. And how can a, how can a nation be cleansed when the church isn't? So it's time that we reevaluate. So this is... King Josiah's grandpa, his father, only uh, Josiah's father, Ammon, only rules for two years, but he was just as wicked as his father before him. And his father is murdered two years into his reign, and Josiah becomes king at eight years old. Only the grace of God would lead him to walk after the Lord because there was no example for him to follow. He has handed a nation that is deeply seated in wickedness and idolatry because of his father and his grandfather before him. He begins to repair the temple in the 18th year of his reign. At age 26, Josiah begins to rebuild the temple. And he tells his secretary to go up to the high priest to count the money that's come into the, the, the um, house of God and to begin to give it to the workers that they might rebuild the house of God. And as they're going through the temple the high priest reports to the secretary of the king that they have found the book of the law. The fact that they found it means they didn't have it and they weren't abiding by it. So there was generations of people that didn't have the law of the Lord before them and they were relying completely on the tradition of man and it led them into idolatry and wickedness and every evil thing. But the King Josiah sits in the temple and the high priest begins to read the law of God to him. Now, it, it's not for sure, but potentially he's 26 years old, hearing the law of God read aloud to him in a temple that has idols in it. This was a temple to Yahweh, but there's idols here. There's false prophets there. There are priests to idols there. And, there, and he's sitting there hearing the law of God saying, he's looking around saying, we are not living in accordance with the law of God. 
We are not worshiping him the way that he desires to be worshiped. And it says that he tears his clothes, which is a, a, a picture of mourning. He begins to weep and mourn. I have been leading this people, and I did not know that we were not leading or living in accordance with the law of God. And so deep contrition and godly grief comes over him to the point that he begins to weep and tear his clothes. And he is confronted by the law of God, and he's looking around, and he realizes that the nation that he's responsible for is not in submission to God's commandments and statutes. And it drives him to his knees. So what we must do, and the reason why we must put our eyes on the law of God for ourselves is because if we don't see it for ourselves, if we don't hear it for ourselves, we cannot be brought to repentance. And therefore, we will remain in our rebellion. And if we remain in our rebellion to our death, then hell is our portion. So we must be confronted by the law of God. Men and women of God love to be confronted by his law. We love the conviction of sin, not, not for the sake that we stay in sin and continue to be con confronted, but that every area that I can't see in me that needs to be plucked out is God puts his finger on my heart by his law and says that thing has to go. And we love that as his people. So what will be our response to the law of God? When we don't know because we don't want to know, as Andrew said, like a hammer and like a fire, the word of God comes like a two-edged sword, swif swiftly striking at the place of rebellion. Do we put up our defenses and justify ourselves, or do we bow our knee to the Lord and his word? King Josiah, when confronted, he immediately gets up, tears down the idols, brings them outside of the temple, and begins to burn them. They slaughter all the false prophets and make sure in this place, Yahweh will be worshipped according to his word. They were, he was jealous for the honor of God, for the righteousness of God to rule in the land, to do whatever was necessary. And the Bible records Josiah as being one as there was no king like him before him and there was never a king like him again in Israel. It's precious the way he responded to the law of God. And so we're going to get ready to take communion. I know that I kept you a few minutes over. But if God is God, then serve him. Line in the sand, turn and serve the living God according to his word, and let God be true, and every man a liar. We are desperate in our day for righteousness to rule, first and foremost in the church, and we will be those people. I'll tell you on behalf of the leadership, we love the law of God. We love his righteous commands. When we see something in us that doesn't please the Lord, we, we cry out and we say, Lord, please help me to walk in this. We know what it's like to live apart from God and apart from his standard. And the way, that's the way of death. And many of us have experienced the way of death in one measure or another. But if you are God's people, then you should rejoice in the law of God. For it's a preservation of our lives. It's a preservation of our hearts and souls in a wicked generation. And it's a revelation to the people of the nations that there is a God. Is there a God that is this righteous? And when Josiah did all this, the first thing they did was they took the Passover celebration. So when laid bare before them the law of God, the first thing they did was they took the covenant meal together. And so that's what we're going to do now. Father, I thank you that as this beautiful Miracle meal, covenant meal goes forth in our congregation, God. Lord, as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, if there be any grievous way in us, Lord, search us and know us and remove that thing from us, Lord. We desire to love you in the splendor of your holiness. We desire to be those set apart by the law of God in a wicked and perverse generation 
not so that we can escape and hide in our buildings, but that our, we can let our light so shine before men. That we might be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. That righteousness and justice is the uh, foundation of your throne. And where you rule, righteousness and justice rule. So we thank you, Lord, for ruling in the seat of our hearts today. We thank you, Lord, that we love your law. And that for every one of your people, Lord, that has not yet fallen in love with your law, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open up our eyes to see the wondrous things that are in your law. Lord, your perfect nature, your perfect being is seen clearly in your law. Lord, we want to love you rightly. We want to worship you according to your word. And we don't want salvation to be hidden from the people. We want your righteousness to rule and go forth. So we thank you, Lord, for coming and doing a work first in us. Awaken your church, God. We pray on behalf of the church in this nation and in the nations of the earth, God. Come and bring awakening to your church and revival, God. Revive us according to your word. Lord, we know by your word that the most glorious days for the church are still ahead for us. We are not cast down by the state of the church today. We are grieved, but we do not lose hope. For we know you will work the work of redemption. We know you will work the work of righteousness in the midst of your people. So today, Lord, we take the supper together as a memorial again of how you led us out of Egypt. How you led us out of bondage. Not to become those that are lawless, but those who love your law. So, Lord, we take your, your body, which was broken for us, God. We thank you for it. Lord, your perfect upholding of the law was not just meant to be a spectacle for us, but a life of example before us to walk as you walked. Oh, Lord, in your broken body, we bless it. We thank you for it. Lord, nourish our spirits with it and our bodies and our souls. In Jesus' name, let's partake of the bread together. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your precious blood. We thank you that it was spilled perfectly and every drop accomplished its purpose. We thank you, Lord, that your blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We thank you, Lord, that you are bringing to mind right now by your mercy the things in us that must be removed. It is only in your light that we see light. So come and shine your perfect law upon our hearts. Enlighten our eyes, Lord, to see. And Lord, when you deal with that, come again with your light and your blood to cleanse us from that unrighteousness again. Lord, we thank you that anyone that is in need of healing, we thank you that anyone that is in need of anything, Lord, we thank you that your blood has supplied all of our needs according to your riches and glory. So we take your blood now, and we love you for your blood. In Jesus' name, let's partake. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, God. We'll open up the, the altars. I, I encourage you, I, I don't think particularly we need the prayer team today, but if you feel to sit with the Lord in this capacity, you can say in your seat, don't let this word just go past you. When the Lord brings a strong word as he has been bringing over these last couple weeks, it's because he desires to do a work in us desires to do he doesn't want to leave us to ourselves this is his mercy this is his his grace to us his empowering presence to bring about and conform us into the image of christ so come and sit and and you could remain in your your seat you can come up here whatever you feel to do let me pray a, a blessing over you father we thank you for this time in your presence god 
we thank you, Lord, that we will be people that are characterized by righteousness and holiness. That, Lord, that your commandments are not burdensome. But they bring rejoicing to the heart. Lord, this is not legalism. This is holiness. This is a life in the spirit. The Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for your blessing upon your people as they go. Lord, let them be beacons of light and hope to a, a society and nation that is under deep darkness. But we say today, church, arise and shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Deep darkness covers the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord has arisen upon you. Walk as Christ walked. Walk in holiness. Walk in righteousness. Thank you for your empowering presence, God, that is only by your spirit that we can accomplish this, that we can do this. And Lord, we pray that it all would be to your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.